you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles around you and chairs nearby. You can grab one page number on the screen. You can make your way there. You can use an electronic device. One way or another, we're inviting you to be in the Scriptures with us. Same invitation. If you're in the overflow, if you're online, hey, hope you got a Bible. Turn with us. Follow along with us so that you're able to see what we're talking about. And hopefully and longingly, our prayer is that God would meet you. Sunday mornings, we're working through the book of Daniel verse by verse and trying to just kind of unpack what God has for us there. That's where we are this morning, and so hoping that it would just work where you are. So let's ask God for it. Let's take one moment and just go before Him in prayer and ask that He'd open up His Word to us. I'm leading, but I'm hoping you're praying that you also would be asking for God to take His Word and make it real to you. Father, thank You for this morning, this opportunity. Thank You for Your Word, which is truth. May you help us to hear it. Give us ears to hear, both in understanding what's before us, but out of that understanding that you would speak to us what we need to hear. You're the only one that can do that, and I believe in your power. Long for that, and long that you would grant favor and help for us to hear your voice this morning. God, I ask for that right now. We ask for that right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Daniel chapter 11 is an amazing, intricate, powerful Bible prophecy. Yet it is one of the most detailed prophecies found in the scriptures laid out for us. It holds out to us some amazing realities. Think about this. In this section that we're going to cover this morning, verses 1 through 35, there are what scholars tell us is 135 specific prophecies that are fulfilled from these verses. I mean, God describing it before it happens and laying it out in incredible history. It's going to lay out a section of history that moves from where Daniel is to 375 years later, moving from 504 BC to 163 BC. That's an amazing chunk of time. And God's going to describe it in incredible detail. He's going to tell us what's going to happen before it happens. In fact, so intricate, so just accurately recorded that for Bible critics, they actually have a problem with this. Yeah, there are those who would look at Daniel chapter 11 and say, actually, this is too accurate. I mean, it's just too, you know, it it almost sounds like the person had already seen this and they're describing history. And so critics of the Bible have come and said, well, you know, Daniel 11 actually isn't Daniel. It's somebody else pretending to be Daniel, but they write it after the effect. And there's a lot of those that actually believe that. But can I quickly tell you, that's not the case. And we have a lot of reasons to believe that. We have a lot of reasons to believe the accuracy of what's laid out for us. That would include manuscript evidence. That would include historical evidence. That includes things that are in the midst of this. That includes the Septuagint. That is the Greek scriptures that were recorded. Lots of powerful things that would confirm to us that this actually was Daniel. But the most convincing and really the only proof we actually need is that Jesus says so. Yeah, well, amazingly, in Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about the future, and he says it this way, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Yet Jesus says, hey, there's this thing, the abomination of desolation. That's going to be in verse 31 of our text this morning. And Jesus says, Daniel wrote it. He says, when you see it, that was spoken of by Daniel the prophet. I mean, I just want you to hear right now, that's all the proof you need. I mean, Jesus told us that Daniel recorded this, and it's for us, therefore, to understand. Therefore, there's no doubt about it that we're looking at a section that is history recorded in advance. History recorded in advance. Well, yeah, that's what we want to talk about, and it's an amazing section. But can I also be honest with you? It's a tough section. I don't know if you've read through the book of Daniel, and if you've read through chapter 11, it's a little bit like mind-blowingly hard to understand. Hey, there's a piece of me that wishes that we could cover verses 1 through 35 in what I just said. Like, okay, 135 prophecies all fulfilled. Let's go to verse 36. (laughs) It's like, I mean, there's just a, because I just want to tell you it's a challenging section, but I can't do that. 
Because here's what we know. The Bible lets us know that God gave us every word. There's not a verse in Scripture that is unnecessary. I believe that, and that's why we teach the way we do. We teach verse by verse through the Scripture, not getting to pick and choose what we're going to cover. So we certainly have to work through this section verse by verse. But I'm just wanting you to own with me at the beginning of it. It's going to be a little bit challenging. I'm going to ask you to kind of put on your thinking cap with me. We're going to talk about history, and there's like a couple of you that are like history buffs, and you're like, oh, this is going to be so much fun, and there are others that are going to be like, oh, this feels like high school, and it's like we're sitting under this, this history teacher that is making history so incredibly boring, and I just want to tell you, I could do that. I mean, I just, that could be so easily what happens in this moment, and so here's what we're going to try to do. We're going to try to just kind of cover that this morning. We're going to work through those 35 verses. We're going to read every one of them, and we'll kind of highlight kind of the big moments that are flowing through that, but we're not going to dive in deep and try to find all 135 prophecies. Now, if you're into it, hey, you go for it. You know, you can go in deeper, but for some of you can be like, man, I'm glad we didn't do that, but we're definitely going to go there, but it is going to just require and ask you to kind of track with me a little bit and do your best to kind of just listen, and by God's grace, we'll hope to get there, but I just definitely want to just express to you my nervousness heading into this and just feeling weak and, and wary heading to it, so let's just ask God for one more time. Would you join me in prayer? Let's just pray that God would help us hear his word. God, thank you for your word, and I want to pray one more time right now because I know it's your word. There's not anything that's wasted. Every word is inspired by you. These words we're about to read, you gave us, and yet, Lord, you know. I mean, I'm just being honest. It's a tough little section. I I know that I'm not going to be the one that can carry that, and so help us. Would you give us just a clarity so we can kind of follow the flow of thought? Would you help us to hear that and then somehow out of that to hear what you would have for us? God, please, in this moment, be our help. I ask for that right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Daniel 11, we find ourselves in a time when the Medo-Persian Empire is the dominant kingdom in the world. Much that's been happening in the the midst of that. But as we find ourselves there, that's where it begins in verse 1. Notice it with me. Also, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Hey, quick FYI, this is an angel speaking and talking to Daniel, and he's highlighting a reality that reminds us right now that what you and I are about to read, it's not the beginning of the conversation. Yeah, actually, Daniel 10, 11, and 12 is one consistent, just flowing, uh, just kind of vision happening in the midst of it. In chapter 10, if you were here last week, it began with Daniel interceding for his nation, having an incredible revelation of Jesus, seeing who Jesus is, and then an angel beginning to unpack for him things that were God was doing. But we saw in the midst of it that one of the realities was that the angel was letting him know that behind the scenes, Behind the the kind of geographical warfare that's happening on the nations, there's a spiritual war happening. And that's actually what we see there. It begins there in verse 1 where this angel speaking says, hey, I was involved in that. I was involved in Darius the Mede coming into power. And again, it lets us know that there's a spiritual war taking place behind the physical. Now, that's not going to be visible to us for these next 35 verses or 34 verses. But certainly, you should be feeling it because it's what we just walked out of that we're understanding that what we're about to read, though it looks natural on the outside, there is a spiritual war always happening behind the scenes, an invisible war that's real. Well, that reality, again, if you missed it, you can go back and catch that from our study last week, but it draws us into this moment, and God begins to tell Daniel what's going to happen. Pick it up in verse 2. It says, now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia. So there Daniel is, he's there in Persia, Darius is there, and he says, hey, there's going to be three more. Three more Persian kings are going to come on the scene, and that's exactly what would happen. It would be Cambrius, Samaras, and Darius I, each one kind of reigning over the Medo-Persian empire for their section, kind of walking in some of those realities, but then there would be a fourth. Tells us in verse 2 in the middle of it, and the fourth shall be far richer than them, than them all, excuse me, and by his strength, Through his riches, he will stir up all against the realm of Greece. 
yeah, this is Xerxes. Or we might also know him as a Hazarus. That's another name for him. That's the term that's used in Ezra and Esther when they refer to him. He comes on the scene and he's far richer than all the rest of them. Greece, I mean, so the media Persian is rising into its kind of power, but they realize something. Greece is about to rise. Greece there in Macedonia is beginning to kind of press kind of the borders. Xerxes realizes that and he launches a campaign to stop them. He raises an army of two million men, a navy of hundreds of ships, heads over there and loses badly at the Battle of of Salamis that some of you might know historically. He loses historically just in the midst of that, and that really becomes a defining moment historically. Yet the Medo-Persian Empire is on the decline. The Grecian Empire is on the rise. In fact, between verses 2 and 3, there's about 100 years. 100 years where the Medo-Persian Empire goes down and the Grecian Empire comes up. Not really the focus for us. Instead, now it shifts that we go past that. We go past this kind of Medo-Persian Empire into what's going to be the Greek Empire. Now, again, if you can kind of see it there on the screen, that purple section, Macedonia, that's Greece. That's where it was growing. But they're about to explode. They're about to move as Alexander's going to come on the scene and take Greece to incredible heights. Well, that's what's really being referred to in verse 4. Sorry, then in verse 3. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule over with great dominion and do according to his will. Yeah, there's going to be this mighty king, he says, that will move into this place. This is the man that we know of historically is Alexander the Great. He brings Greece onto the scene in incredible power. In the short year of his, years of his reign, about 12 years till he's 32 years old, he literally conquers the known world. And military tactics that are still studied to this day in their amazement in the way that he does it, he literally conquers the world. Now, interestingly enough, though we get a picture of this man, his dominion and his might, there's not much given to us here in this section. Now, in part, we already talked about him a little bit in Daniel chapter 8, but in another part, he's not really the focus. In fact, pause and catch this. In this kind of 370-year just kind of gaze, our focus is on Israel. Our focus on, is on how the world is affecting Israel. And though Alexander the Great would come on the scene and do amazing things, uh, honestly, he doesn't really touch Israel much. In fact, it's interesting. And Josephus, who's a historian, he writes about it and tells us that Alexander the Great comes to, to Israel, comes to Jerusalem, still trying to decide what to do with them, and the high priest comes out and shows him Daniel shows him the book of Daniel, shows how he was spoken of both in Daniel 8 and here in Daniel 11. Just Alexander is so caught up with that, he's just so impressed, he decides not to even bother with Israel, and Israel lives in peace in that whole time period, which again is kind of why it's in so many ways passed over so quickly. Well, when Alexander dies, things change. Verse 4, when he has arisen, and really the word risen there has the idea when he dies, when he, when he, when he, when he leaves, His kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. Yeah, Alexander dies, and it doesn't go to his children. It doesn't go to his family that, in many ways, all of them are young or are slaughtered very quickly after Alexander, you know, kind of passes from the scene. And the Grecian Empire moves into a a kind of a civil war period where, really, it moves to four of his generals. That The whole Grecian Empire finds itself under Cassander, Lymachidas, Ptolemy, and Seleucus, each one of them taking a section of the Grecian Empire and it becoming their empire in many ways. So we kind of take this kind of map that we're looking at, this whole green section where that's Greece under Alexander the Great, but when he passes, it divides, and so Cassander gets his part, Lymachidas gets his, Seleucus, Ptolemy, each one taking a section of that empire. Well, that kind of sets the scene for where we are, but we're going to shift again. So now we've seen it. We've seen the Greek empire is going to rise, and that's still going to happen within those four movements, but we're only going to focus on two of them. From verse 5 to verse 35, where we're going to go this morning, we're only going to focus on two of that, really what's going to be called the north and the south. We're only going to focus on the the Seleucid empire and, and the Ptolemaic empire, really because that's what concerns Israel. 
So let me put this map back up on the screen. It's not a great map, but it helps us kind of just see those four empires. But we'll switch that map out for this one that really highlights just these two. That if you can pay attention to it there, the purple or the red, however you want to see that, that's going to be, again, the north. That's going to be the Seleucid Empire. The, the green or the south, that's going to be the Ptolemaic Empire over Egypt. And if you can see it, Israel's right in between. I mean, that whole Arabia, that's desert, so that's not it. Everything we're about to read happens through Israel, that they're either fighting in Israel or each kingdom's going to move back and forth through this land bridge that Israel is and finds himself in the middle of everything that's going to be kind of this pull and fro between these two empires that was going to happen as Daniel gazes down into history. Well, it begins there in verse 5. It says, also the king of the south shall become strong as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall have a great dominion. Yeah, the south moves into place. He begins to kind of step into this whole place, talking about Ptolemy and, and, and his work and all that would take place there. Ptolemy, he's an interesting guy. I mean, in many ways, he was a general under Alexander the Great. It's not a huge surprise that he kind of emerges victorious over parts of this section. His power was kind of noted historically, and, and so he's very, very capable. Seleucus, on the other hand, not so much. He kind of takes Babylon at first, and he's actually driven out of it uh, by a man named Antiguus I, and for a while he has no place, and so he actually goes and allies himself with Ptolemy. He becomes one of his generals, or as it kind of refers to it there in verse 5, he becomes one of his princes, but that's only for a short period of time. Once Antiguus dies in a battle just north of Israel, uh, he makes his way back up to there, really leading the Seleucid Empire, and it becomes stronger than the Ptolemaic Empire, or the way it refers to it in verse 5, his dominion will be a great dominion. What he begins to lead in becomes something so much stronger. Well, now they're set in place. We have these two empires. We're seeing them beginning to take place and the things that are happening. Now there's a failed treaty. Yeah, there it tells us in, in verse 6, and at the end of some years, they shall join forces, kind of decide to kind of work together. For the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an arrangement, but she shall not retain the power of her authority. Neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up. And with those who brought her, and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times." Yeah, we watch all of this, and at this moment, Ptolemy decides, hey, the best way to kind of solidify this is to have a marriage. So he sends his daughter up into the, to the north to, to marry Seleucid, to, to kind of moves in, into that, and to marry into the Seleucid Empire. Antiochus II is the guy that's there at that moment, and he decides it's a great idea, but there's a problem. He's already married. <laughs> He's already married, so he decides this is such a good deal, he decides to divorce his present wife, Laodice, and, and put her away, kind of moving her from just the power that would be there, and he decides, hey, I'm going to marry Bernice, and she's going to be the daughter of the Ptolemaic Empire, that I'm going to kind of move into this, and this would be a good kind of alliance. It goes horribly. Yet she goes up there, and Laodice, who was his wife of Antiochus II, she didn't like this deal at all, obviously, so she poisons her husband, and Bernice, they both die. Everybody that comes with them is slaughtered. Everything goes badly for the Ptolemaic Empire, so it affects all the way down into the south. Everything they intended to do in kind of this marriage that was, again, mixed with power and control and, and, and moving it, it goes badly, which is, again, what's referred to there. Whereas it tells her that, you know, that she's not going to retain the power of her authority in verse 6. Neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up with those who brought her and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened in those times, everything goes badly. Well, at that moment, things change a little bit down in the south, and Ptolemy II comes into power. This is her brother, and he's furious. He's furious that his sister has been killed. He's furious about how everything that's going to happen, so he decides to come and attack. In verse 7, it tells us, But the branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place, who shall come with an army, and into the fortresses of the king of the north, and deal with them and prevail. Excuse me. I have to have notes for this one. So, I mean, in one sense, we watch all of this happen, and you know, he, he moves into this. He begins to work you know, through that in the middle of that place. Sorry, let me go back to it. I advanced one too quickly. 
So we watch all that's happening. We think about the things that are just taking place in the midst of this. Ptolemy's in this whole place where, where he gets to, to move in this. And so he comes up there to, to bring in, you know, just rain, just death upon them. It tells us, you know, he goes in there. He takes all the gods that the Syrians had taken and brings them back to Egypt, which if you know anything about Egyptian history, they were incredibly happy about. Much of it had taken place. They actually give him the name Eugenitus, which means benefactor, because he's able to kind of bring in some restoration, but he does it again because he was so furious because his sister ends up being killed. So he does that. That kind of brings that to an end in verse 8, where it just lets us know um, he shall carry their gods captive to Egypt and with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold, and he shall continue more years than the king of the north. Like he just lasts in the midst of that. Well, time passes a little bit, but the north had been humiliated, so now they decide they're going to come into it. And so in verse 9, the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the south, but shall return to his own land. He does so in that sense defeated. He attacks in 240 um, BC, totally defeated, makes his way back in a humiliating defeat. And interestingly enough, for whatever, he dies uh, in an accident, falling off his horse, but in some ways just ending his reign and his attempt to kind of bring in help. Well, that only kind of just exacerbates the problem. So now they're still humiliated up in the north. And so it lets us know in verse 10 that the descendants after that stir up strife. However, his son shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through, and he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. So, so in this whole thing, we watch this whole thing. The sons begin to move into that. Seleucus III, who's up in the north, he kind of brings in battles. He begins to fight against the south. It goes okay. I mean, it's not a horrendous uh, kind of place, but neither is it just really marked by it. But then his, uh, his son, Antiochus the, the III, he comes in, and things really begin to shift. We're going to be talking about Antiochus III for the next few verses, and so he really is this one who's up in the, the north controlling the Seleucid dynasty and, and watching all this happen. So he brings in a war that lets us know there in, in verse 10 that, that he passes through and, and he returns to his, his fortress. He stirs up strife, but it lets us know that he overwhelms Israel. In fact, read it again in verse 10. However, his son shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. Israel, again, is the focus and what's happening there. And now at this moment, as Antiochus begins, up to this point, it's just been a back and forth. I mean, Israel's just been the land bridge. They've been the go-between. It's not gone incredibly well for them, but neither has it been something they've really particularly been involved in, but Antiochus changes things. He really overwhelms and, and, and does you know, battle both in Israel and bringing some defeats even upon the Jews in the, in the midst of this, and, and they begin to get involved. That moves us to verse 11, is now the south response. The king of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with him, and the king of the north who shall muster a great army, but the multitude shall be given into the hand of the enemy." Verse 12, then when, he, when he's taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. Ptolemy III, he kind of moves into this whole place, and, and he's just enraged, enraged by what Antiochus has done, enraged by how this is happening. So he kind of moves into this, and he, and he begins to kind of bring in a defeat upon the northern kingdom. It takes place in the land of Israel, takes place in, in the midst of that, but at the same moment, he becomes incredibly arrogant. Gave it to us there in that verse, again in verse uh, 12, it says, when he had taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up. And he'll cast down tens of thousands. Historically, not only does he become proud and powerful, he slaughters thousands of Jews there in, in the land of Israel. Some say up to 40,000 uh, Jews, you know, kind of rising in this. And that really becomes part of his downfall. It says out of that, he's not going to prevail. That because of what's happening in that moment, what he begins to do, what he's intended in this moment actually goes against him. It actually begins to move badly. That takes us back to the north, and there we get it in verse 13. Then the king of the north, this again is Antiochus III, will return and muster a multitude greater than the former. He shall come with the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. So he comes back. like He's like, okay, we're going to deal with this. We're going to really bring a defeat into this whole place. But something begins to happen 
not only in the battle, but to the Jewish people as well. You pick it up there in verse 14. Now in those times, many shall rise up against the king of the south. Also violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. Okay. Trying to track with it again, Israel's been caught in the midst. They've, they've definitely seen the war going back and forth. They've had people die, maybe even thousands, but things shift at this moment. Ptolemy really had brought in arrogance. He had really kind of marched through the land and even exalted himself against God in many ways. And it causes some of the Jews to move back and they decide to slide with the Seleucid Empire. They become what it says here is violent. Now that word violent, it is the idea of something that is I don't know how to say this, but say it's, it's not a good thing. This isn't God complimenting the, the, the nation of Israel. This is something where they choose to invest themselves into this battle, no longer just sitting on the sidelines, but decide, hey, we'd rather have the Seleucid Empire than the Ptolemaic Empire. And they decide in kind of a guerrilla warfare, they decide to really work them, th- that themselves, maybe even trying to help God out. It's interesting just the way it words it there in verse 14. Also, violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision. They really begin to kind of exalt themselves, but maybe even trying to help God out. But he lets us know it's not going to go well for them. This is going to be their fall. They're, they're going to fall because of this. They shall fall because of what they do. And I found myself just thinking of Jesus. When he was talking there in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter pulls out his sword to try to help Jesus out. And Jesus says, put your sword in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. He says, if that's the battle you're going to fight, that'll be the battle that you lose. And that's exactly what happens to the Jews. That they step into this no longer on the sidelines, deciding to kind of align themselves in the midst of the battle. And now it's as if they have a tiger by the tail. They literally are attacked from both sides. That both the Ptolemaic and the Seleucid Empire begin to attack Israel themselves. And everything begins to shift for them. Everything begins to move in this moment where they begin to find themselves just oppressed by this. Tells itself in verse 15 there, it says, And the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist, but he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. Yeah, so we watch all of this. Antiochus III, he comes back. <laughs> he comes back. The Ptolemaic Empire ends up being driven out, you know, in the midst of this and, and, and all that begins to happen in this place. They literally come down and he has a battle up in northern Israel and Peneus. Some of you know, like this is Caesarea Philippi, if anybody knows this later in the New Testament. Incredible battle happens here where the southern empire is defeated and a horrendous defeat. Or General Scopus, who, who leads their battles, is controlled controlled and and beat this. He takes all of that. So the northern kingdom now begins to oppress, taking Israel, taking all that's there. The north is defeated, but he does so in this sense in a cruel way. Again, Israel had kind of aligned themselves, or at least the violent people had said, hey, we'd rather have the north. Now they're going to regret it because now he comes and it's not a good thing. He occupies it. He says, you know, that tells us again, in, the mid, in verse 16, he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and, he shall, and no one will stand against him. He'll stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. That's what he does. So he comes, begins to rule over Israel, oppressing them, bringing them under what they really had not been under so much of, which is an oppressive, oppressive regime right now, and that's going to last. I mean, it starts here, and it will last till 63 AD, then in the Battle of Pompeii, when Rome kind of moves in and they kind of take over Israel. But everything has shifted. Israel now moves into a place where no longer just watching it happen, no longer just being kind of caught up into it. They're in the middle of it. And it goes incredibly badly for them uh, and probably badly for all that's there. Well, at that moment, we move very quickly into a number of battles and defeats where, you know, the north kind of steps into this and, and, and what they long to, to do goes badly. Kind of peck it up in verse 17. It says, he shall also set his face to enter with strength of his whole kingdom and the upright with him, and thus he shall do. He shall give the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or before him. 
Quick pause. I mean, we watch all this, and Tiak is the third. He's kind of oppressing. He's thinking this through. He's taken Israel, but he begins to set his, you know, idea on even controlling all of the southern kingdom, taking Egypt, taking uh, the Ptolemaic Empire. So he gives his daughter to them. It's a little bit different, though, on the other one. We watch all of this, and again, it just says it this way. As we look there in verse 17, he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it. It's an interesting reference that is very specific. The daughter of women would actually place the age of her, which we actually know historically. She's about seven years old. He gives his seven-year-old daughter in marriage to the Ptolemaic Empire, hoping that, you know, at this moment, that will kind of, you know, solidify his power in the South. It totally doesn't work. Um, this is Cleopatra, not Cleopatra like we would know later with Mark Antony, but a previous one who's given to this, and, and she's given over there, but instead of siding with her dad, she sides with her husband, and, and she totally gets behind the Ptolemaic Empire, supporting them, supporting everything that goes wrong, and so again, it tells us in verse 17, he'll give his daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or be for him. Antiochus is furious. He's furious that that doesn't work. And so he sets himself to attack all the coastlands to begin to oppress everything that's in there. Verse 18, he'll turn his face to the coastlands, coastlands and take many, but a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end. And with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. So Antiochus comes in there. It looks like he's going to win. He's kind of gaining everything, but a ruler begins to rise. This is Rome. Uh, Rome is not yet the world governing empire they'll be, but they are beginning to rise. They step into this battle and he's defeated. He's defeated and embarrassed, uh, kind of driven back through this. He is, is driven back to his land. When Rome conquers them, they not only decimate his army and reduce it, they take uh, his treasures, they take one of his sons to hold his collateral, and they put upon him and upon the Seleucid Empire just a, a taxation that's massive, that they now have to, to, to pay this, this huge kind of fine each year to Rome. So Antigus goes back up there in the midst of him raising the money to pay for what he had to pay for Rome. He ends up dying as a mob overwhelms him as he tries to take money uh, outside of that Take, take money outside of, a, of a, a temple to Zeus in the midst of that and goes badly for him. So Antiochus III, this guy that we'd been watching, who'd been so much power, he moves from the scene and there rises another one who's what in some senses we'll just call a taxing king. Yeah, a taxing king, this is Seleucus III. He comes on the scene and it lets us know that his coming is entirely different. Verse 20, we'd lay it out this way. Um, actually, I will read verse 19 because I didn't end up reading that before. Then he shall turn his face with his fortress to his own land. He shall stumble and fall and not be found. That's Antiochus III. Goes back. He dies. There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. But within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. So Seleucus III, he comes on and really he's slated with trying to raise this money to, to pay Rome, uh, to pay for the defeat that Antiochus had. And so he begins to raise money and he sets his eyes on Israel and says, hey, you know, I'm going to raise taxes from them. They're going to pay for all that, which again it says is he, sets, he seeks to impose taxes on the glorious kingdom in verse 20, but in a few days he'll be destroyed. He's destroyed not in anger, like a mob, like his father, Antiochus, is done, nor in battle. It's not like he dies in battle. Actually, in a very kind of almost ironic way, his tax collector, Heraclitus, poisons him. And in many ways, this one that was seeking to raise taxes on Israel, he dies and moves off the scene. Okay, you guys doing all right? Doing all right? So we still got more to do. So hang in there. Still a little bit more history. So everything begins to shift. Verse 21, we now move from the different kingdoms that we've seen, and we move and we're introduced to a man who God calls a vile king. Verse 21, and in his place shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. This is in Antiochus IV one of the worst rulers in history, one who is marked both in Israeli history, but in, 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 even in the history of the world as someone just incredibly corrupt, and, and what he brings into the moment, something that is absolutely horrible. Well, his rise to power is different. It's different than any others that have risen to power before him. Again, just reading it in verse 21, 
In his place shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty. I mean, he doesn't rise to power because he's royal. It's not his by deserving, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. He comes in and begins to make alliances. Um, his approach to power, it's not like anything that had really been done before. He begins to kind of negotiate behind the scenes. He has this whole corrupt system behind the scenes where even some would say he kills his brother that would have been kind of set for the throne. He pays off who he needs to pay off. He, he kind of storms almost this mob-like mentality that brings him into power. In fact, keep reading in verse 22. And with the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him, and it shall be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. It's almost as if you could watch it. It's like a flood takes over. He just, everything before him is swept away. All resistance, like, it just disappears. And in some ways, it's, you know, like anybody that stands against him, kind of like disappears quietly, you know, kind of off the scene. Like he's got behind the scenes kind of this mob, kind of this, this controlling factor, but he begins to pay off people. He moves into it, not in a, in a sense of just, you know, again, military power, but money, and even so much that even the prince of the covenant is swept away. Yeah, that's what it tells us there in verse 22. Everybody swept away before him and is broken, and also the prince of the covenant. Very quick giving it to you, the high priest in Israel, Anias at this point in time, is a fairly godly high priest. Antiochus doesn't like him. He doesn't like him where he is, so he deposes him, removes him from being high priest, and he, and he gets paid off by, by a man named Jason who, who says, hey, I'll be high priest if, you'll pay, if I pay you, and Antiochus thinks it's a great idea. Until Melchitis comes along the side and says, hey, I'll pay you more to get it, and he gives the priesthood to him. Everything begins to shift in some ways that power begins to be by who can pay for it, like who's there instead of who deserves it or righteousness and all of that, and he begins to see that happen throughout his kingdom. Pick it up. He tells us in verse 23, and after a league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. He shall enter peaceably even into the richest places of the province. He shall do what his fathers have not done nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, the spoil, the riches, and he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. His way of ruling isn't like anything that had been done before. It's not military. It's not a controlling, you know, because you have a military force. It's, it's money. It's power. It's dispersing that, paying people off, drawing people into everything that that would be. He becomes this one that ha- just moves into power in an incredibly ugly way. Well, now that he's kind of solidified his power, now that he's kind of bought his way into that position, he decides to set his mind towards a war with the south. Tells us in verse 25, he shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall be stirred up into battle with a very great army and mighty army and shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. Yes, those who eat the portion of his delicacy shall destroy him, and his army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. So Antiochus begins to move into this. He, he sets this battle into place. Ptolemy raises up his army against him, but it's really badly organized. In fact, the Ptolemaic kingdom falls in battle before Antiochus IV, not because of just military things, but because of internal things that are really people deceiving him, where he just talks about it there in verse 26, those who ate the portion of his delicacies, they destroy him. That those who were in his court trying to turn against him, side with Antiochus, and many are falls. At the same moment, they begin to enter into this weird place that for a number of years, they try to have these peace treaties that they break immediately, uh, that they you know, act like they want peace and then they want war. And so you get it there in verse 27. Both these kings' hearts shall, shall be bent on evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but it shall not prosper. For the end it will be at the appointed time. So they, they have all this thing. They have this deceitful war where they kind of you know, set up this thing. Hey, we're going to be friends. And then just turn, both of them do it back and forth. But it goes badly. Well, at this moment, Antiochus, the fourth, he's had that last sit down with Ptolemy, kind of again turned on him, betrayed him, and he begins making his way home. Verse 28, while returning to his land with great riches, his heart will be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his holy land. So he comes back, he's making his way from the south, 
and he's coming back with great riches. And, and, and while he's returning into this moment, he stops in Israel. He stops in Israel, and he finds not only what he doesn't want to find, he finds really almost this insurrection going on. Now, in many ways, it's his fault. Again, I already told you that he had deposed the high priest, and so he'd given it to one man and then had been given money and given it to another. Well, while he's been gone, those two who had been feuding, not in a godly way, they've kind of been at war with one another, and they're vying for power there in Israel. Antiochus hates it. I mean, he's frustrated with the Jews. He's frustrated with the, the, the way they handle things. And so he begins to shift now that it tells us again that his heart will be moved against the Holy Covenant. Like he begins to resist everything that is Israeli, everything that's Jewish, and begins to tell them, hey, you guys are going to have to become Grecian. You're going to have to give up all of these things. His heart begins to be moved against that, and he begins to set things in motion. He begins to set things in motion that are not going to happen right away, but just oppression that's happening in the land where he's trying to turn them, you know, from everything that's there and tries to, you know, move them into the things that are away from that. He plunders the temple, he kills thousands, and yet does everything he can to begin that. Well, now he gets back to his land, and he decides again, hey, I'm going to go back down to the south. I'm going I'm to go and, and, and seek to bring defeat upon them and, and what that looks like. And so he picks it up in verse 29. It says, and at the appointed time he shall return and go to the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter, for the ships from Cyprus shall come against him. Therefore, he shall be grieved and return in rage against the Holy Covenant and do damage. Okay, so he comes. Uh, I mean, he decides, I'm going to really kind of really try to conquer the south this time. He sweeps through Israel, already kind of controlling that, gets all the way to Alexandria. It looks like everything's going to go well for him, but the Ptolemaic Empire appeals to Rome. And appeals and sides with Rome, makes an alliance with them. Rome comes in, has a number of heavy defeats, and, and there they find themselves as they're kind of in the, 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 the bay right there. The Roman commander leaves his ship, meets with, Alexander, sorry, with Antiochus IV, and basically tells him, hands him a letter from the Roman Senate, says, you're done, <laughs> go home, because we, this is now a protected kingdom by us. It's kind of an interesting moment. Antiochus does what he's been doing the whole time. He tries to, well, you know, that's kind of, let me get talk to a few people. Let me see what I can do. And he kind of tries to pull kind of the, the way he's been handling it. And history tells us that the Roman general walks up to Antiochus, draws a circle around him and says, the moment you step out of this circle, your decision is decided. Either you're going home or we're going to take you down. And Antiochus is humiliated. He's, he's embarrassed in front of everybody. He ends up giving in, surrendering to Rome, marching back home, but he's crushed. And that really begins to kind of form what he does. Again, just reading it in verse 30, the ships from Cyprus, which are from Rome, shall come against him. Therefore, he shall be grieved and return in rage against the Holy Covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress, and they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Following Rome's kind of intervention, again, he, he, he's just enraged. So he, he's moved, and again, you've got to hear the way it says it, he's enraged against the Holy Covenant. Like he decides to take it out on God. He decides to take it out on everything that has anything to do with God's people, everything that has anything to do with all of that. So he moves back this, and the things that he had started doing in his last frustrating kind of moment in Israel, he forces. He decides for them, you're done. Like, Israel's done, Jewishness is done, so that he makes it illegal to do anything that is Jewish, to have a copy of the Scriptures becomes death penalty, to circumcise your kids becomes death penalty, uh, to, to carry out any of the Jewish feasts becomes a death penalty. He slaughters anybody that resists him. He brings in Roman oppression. He brings in things like even crucifixion that Rome had begun doing. He begins to use that even in this space, crucifying and slaughtering anybody that resists him. He makes his way there to the temple in Jerusalem, and, and, and in that he does just damage, killing literally thousands, 22,000 people inside the city of, of Jerusalem. He encourages apostasy. He tells people, hey, you need to leave. Like, you're done being Jewish. You're Greek. Like, if, if, you, if you'll be Greek, you'll survive. If you stay Jewish, you die. 
And he goes there into the temple and he puts in there what the text says again is the abomination of desolation. Yeah, we know that he goes in there into Jerusalem. He marches into the temple. He sets up a bust there for Zeus in the temple. He slaughters a pig, which for the Jews would just be, you know, the most horrible thing you can do. And he basically says, this is now your God. Which, by the way, in the Greek and mindset, Antiochus was meant to be the embodiment of it. He stands there in the temple mount and he says, I am your God. He calls himself Antiochus Epiphanes, which means God made manifest. <laughs> the Jews didn't like it, by the way. They gave him the t- title Antiochus Epiphanes, which is, you know, Antiochus the madman. Doesn't go well for them. Um, but in that whole place, you know, he just says, hey, you're done. Like, I'm, I'm God, and, and you now need to turn. And I wish I could describe for you how horrendous this moment was. It's one of the darkest moments in human history, definitely one of the darkest moments in Jewish history, as just the oppression, the, the crushing oppression he brings in upon them, seeking to erase from existence, you know, both the Jewish people, the godliness of everything that's there. He brings in such incredible cruelty, such incredible harshness that Jews will still talk about it to this day, feeling the weight of what he had done. In his steps, kind of you, for some of you might just help to think about one who's like him, like Adolf Hitler, who comes on the scene and has his kind of final solution for the Jews. That's what this is. It's his way to say, we're done with this. We're absolutely going to destroy. We're absolutely going to decimate the Jewish people. Anything that is that, and he seems to be successful. For a period of time, everything goes underground. Everything becomes oppressive. Everything changes. Everything moves from that so that really you could divide up what happens to the Jewish people in a number of categories. Some of them, they, they, they become those who forsake God who do what he says, that he tells us there in verse 30, he shall return and show regard to those who forsake the holy covenant. Like, if you'll turn away from this, then you'll be blessed. It enters into something that we know as Hellenization, which is really kind of Greek thought. It will affect the Jews all the way into the New Testament. Some of you will know, even in the New Testament, talk about the Hellenized Jews. These are those who forsake their Jewishness and say, we are no longer Jewish. (laughs) We are Greek. We, we, are, we have Greek ways, we do Greek things, we don't do Jewish things. And so he says, if you'll do that, you're going to be okay. He shows regards for those who do that. Then he'll also, it tells us there in verse 32, and those who do wickedly against the covenant, he'll corrupt with flattery. So anybody who, you know, really allows themselves to be controlled by him, he'll control them. And, and, and some kind of move down into that pathway. But then it says in verse 32, But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. It's an incredible verse, which, by the way, we'll come back and talk about in more detail next week. But can I just tell you, this is exactly what begins to happen. There were some that, boy, they're so moved at this moment. And they know who God is, and they refuse to to kind of bow down to this. This becomes the Maccabean revolt. The Judas Maccabee kind of moves into this. Him and his son kind of, you know, begin to fight back. Called the They give him the nickname Maccabean, which is kind of the hammer or the one that would fight against this. They begin to lay down their lives to try to fight back against all of this and kind of move this out, and they end up being successful. The Maccabean revolt drives out Antiochus and drives out his people, and they restore the Jewish temple to Jewishness. They relight the lamps in the temple, and there's kind of a whole kind of story of how they run out of oil, and God supernaturally supplies it, which becomes the story of Hanukkah. If any of you guys know Jews celebrate Hanukkah to this day, this is what they're celebrating. They're celebrating these who resisted this moment and saw, you know, kind of God's name restored into the land. At the same moment as a revolt was happening, there were others. There are some that began to just instruct people. It says in verse 33, And the people who had understanding shall instruct many, but for many days they'll fall by the sword, by flame, by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join them by intrigue. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them and purify them, make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for an appointed time. Simply put, so, so people begin teaching kind of in an underground way the things of God. That begins to go well, but many begin to die. There's intrigue, there's deception in the midst of the whole thing again, but it becomes a place where so many lay down their lives. So, so much is happening in this moment. Again, we need to come back and talk about some of this practically because it has ramifications for us even to this day. But what I want to pause and simply tell you, this is exactly what happened. 
Israel is decimated at this moment, and, and there really is no in-between. You either went one direction, where for Jews, they either bow down and become Hellenistic, or they're flattered, or they move into this kind of underground, you know, hey, we're holding out, we're going to fight for, for God. There really is no in-between, a horrendous moment that just absolutely mars just the, the place in history, Antiochus becoming one that does incredibly horrible things in the midst of that, really giving us a picture of one that's going to come. The, and the Antichrist is going to step into these same shoes, which, by the way, is where we go in the next verse. Hey, we won't talk about it this morning. I realize I've kind of overwhelmed you, but let me just say this. From verses 1 through 35, it happened. Everything we just read happened in 375 years. Verse 36 begins to talk about another future that has not yet happened, that becomes prophetic future, which will be kind of much of what we see in this man Antiochus. And we'll see how he's a prefigurance of a man that you and I know as the Antichrist, and we'll talk about that more in the future. That said, let's just come back to it and say, okay, so if you're tracking with me this morning, if I've helped at all, hey, I just want to tell you, we just covered one of the most just intense biblical kind of prophetic sections found in the scripture, and it is overwhelming. Now, here's what I know. There's like one of you who loved this. You know, like, you're like, this is so fascinating. I'm going to go home and read on the Ptolemaic and Seleucid Wars. I got to know more. You're just like, I'm going to go watch videos. And hey, if that's you, you go. Like, you go. That's, that's great. Now, some of you, you're like, I lost you a long time ago. I just, I'm doing my brain. I'm just not, just like, north, south, south, north, marriage. I don't even know. If some of you kind of hung in there a little bit, and you felt it even though you don't fully understand it. That's not a bad thing. In fact, again, I just want to speak into that and say, hey, you don't have to remember everything we just said, but here's the important thing. It's accurate. This was 375 years of history. That's a big point in time, by the way. That's longer than we've been a nation. This is 375 of history that God prophesies before it happens, tells us exactly what's going to happen before it happens. It happens exactly as God says it's going to happen. So what do you and I do with that? I mean, for, for you and I, I mean, we think about it, this is the past. For Daniel, it was still to come, but for you and I, everything we just read, it has already happened. So how is this supposed to help you? How is that supposed to help me? Well, there's a number of things we could say, but I want to give you a couple applications. Just a couple things I want you to think about with me just for a moment. First and foremost, as we think about everything that's here, understand this, as we think about what God is telling us here, part of what's being described out for us helps us understand God's reality. That God's ability to describe the future before it happens is a proof that God is God and He's the only one. Hey, God would say it this way to us in Isaiah. He says, for I am God, and there is no else. There is no one other. I am God, and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. He says, I'm God, and there's not anybody else. I can tell you the future before it happens. I'm the one who can tell you what happens before it happens. Now, that's a mark of his reality. So strong is it a mark of his reality, he really throws it down as a gauntlet to false gods. And earlier in the book of Isaiah, he would say it this way, two gods who are, you know, almost as if he were speaking to false gods and people who are believing in other things as gods. He would say, present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of J Jacob. Show us things that are to come hereafter, that we may know you are gods. Yes, do good or evil that we may be dismayed and see it all together. He says, if you're a god, then you should be able to tell us the future. Understand this as clearly as I can say it. They can't. God is God. He's the only God. There are other religions in our world that are man-made religions, but none of them can do this. In all the other just kind of, you know, kind of spiritual books, whether they be, you know, the Quran or be in other places, there's nothing else that has the weight of biblical prophecy that God can tell us the future before it happens. If there's anything prophetic in any of those, it's so vague. Like, oh yeah, and the light kind of beats the darkness. You know, I mean, it's just a, I mean, there's just nothing to it. There's nothing like what you and I just read that's gonna be like, okay, the south's gonna come against the north, and north's gonna come against the south, and they're gonna have this marriage, and it's not gonna go well. And I mean, God tells us with an accuracy what only he can. And so God looks out at all the other gods and says, If you could, if you're a God, then you should be able to tell us the future. But there are none. He says, Indeed, you are nothing, and all your work is nothing, and he who chooses you is an abomination. Like you believe in anything else as a God, you find yourself in a horrendous place because your God is no God 
at all. In fact, he would say it to this way again. He says, who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? There is no other God beside me. A just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. He says, I'm the only God. I'm the only one. There is nothing else out there. And part of what biblical prophecy for us does is just, uh, just really authenticate that. Just let us know, hey, he's God and there is no other. And he's a just God. He's a holy God, but he's a saving God. He's a savior. That's what he did in sending his son. That the weight of all this draws into a place that God ends up sending his son to rescue. And I say this just quickly, if that's not where you are this morning, if you believe in anything else other than God, you're believing in something that's a lie. And partly what biblical prophecy does is to say there's a God and there's only one. And and he's just, but he's a saving God and you desperately need him. Maybe think about it this way. Sometimes when people try to understand this, we have this kind of way of processing it. It's not a great illustration. It's got a number of weaknesses to it, but it might just help. Sometimes you can think about history like a parade. That, you know, a parade that marches down through Main Street, moving place by place. You and I are locked in space and time. Like we are in 2021. We see what we see right here. We can read about the past, but we can't be there. We can only see this, but God isn't locked into time. He's above time. It's as if he's in a, you know, the Goodyear blimp, if you will, above the parade, and he's able to say, I can see the whole thing. I can tell you what's coming. I can tell you where you are. I can tell you where you've been. I see them all at the same time because I'm the only one that can. I'm a God who's bigger than you are. I'm a God who can see that. And and even though you might not come out of this going, boy, I totally understand Daniel chapter 11. I know every one of those 135 prophecies. You might not do that. But you could come out of it saying, he does. He sees everything because he's God. That part of what this authenticates to us is a God who can and does. And he's the only one that is this, that our God is the real and only God. Now, a process that a little bit more, because he is God and can tell us the future, it also reminds us that there's not anything he doesn't understand. So God describes 375 years of history incredibly accurately. Now, he doesn't do that for all of human history, but he could. He could describe 2020 and 2021 and 2022, as easily as he just described these things. He could tell us all things that are going to happen if if that's what he wanted to unpack for us. He doesn't because we don't need to know all of that, but seeing this helps us to know something. Like, he knows there's not anything that's happening that he doesn't understand, and that should apply itself to this moment so that we could look at this world and say, you know what? God knows what's going on. (laughs) He sees it. I mean, he sees everything that's happening. There's not anything that's hidden to him. Not any of it is a surprise but he doesn't just know it. He's working in the midst of it to take us to a beautiful end. Yeah, that's where the chapter is going to go. It's as if history is going to fade out into the past and take us into the future, and he's going to tell us everything that's coming and to tell us everything that's going to happen and how accurately it's going to happen, but all that kind of gives us a feel that we know this about our God, that he's a God who is both over time, understanding time, and leading us through it so that there is going to be a good and a glorious end, that he's going to bring all this to pass. Now, I just want to tell you there's so much that's found there, but if you could believe even those three things, that God is God, he knows everything, and he's working, what that would invite you is into a place of resting in him of being still. Yeah, I want to hold before you that verse out of Psalm 46. Many of you guys know it and think about even what's found there. And in Psalm 46, it gives it to us this way, where God invites us and says, be still and know that I'm God. I want you to think about this just for a moment. It's a great invitation. It's an invitation where God says, here's what I need you to do. Here's what I need you to do. Just rest in me. Just be still. There's not any sense right now that God's up there going, man, I'm just so worried about how the world's, if you guys don't come through, if you like drop the ball in 2021, boy, everything's a mess. I mean, this whole thing's going to be done. I mean, there's not any part of that. He says, here's what I need you to do. Just stop and rest that I'm God. Just know that I got this, know that I'm working, know that I'm in it, and and, and into a place where you could just see who he is and who he is would give you hope. Now, that's really where Psalm 46 goes, and so let me do this. Let me read all of Psalm 46 with you. There's a bunch of details to it, but I think you can get just the feel of it this way. Psalm 46 begins with God just telling us God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. 
In other words, this is today. Hey, God, he's a safe place for you today. He's a place where you could feel strong and strength. He's a God that would strengthen you. In fact, he's a God that would help you. And I love the way he describes it in this verse. If God only said that he would be a help in trouble, can I tell you that would be enough? (laughs) If God looked at you and said, are you having a hard time? I'll help you. That would be enough. But he adds to it. He says, I'm not just going to help you. I'll be present with you. I'll be a present help in your trouble. I'll be with you in your problem. And if he just said that, it would be like world-shattering, amazing. And then God just has to go beyond it. He says, you know what? How about I be a very present help in your time of need? How about I be so in your world that you could look upon this and be helped in your space by me? How so? Well, he just tells us again. He says, here's the thing. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed and even though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters roar and be troubled, even if the whole world seems upside down, even if mountains, things that seem like they're so secure, are changing, even if the waters around us feel troubled. He says, no matter how hard it is, no matter how difficult a space of it is, please know this, it's not the end of the story. He goes in the next verse and says, there's a river whose stream shall make glad the city of God a holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God will help her just at the break of dawn. Hey, this is a description of heaven. This is a description of the new Jerusalem. This is a place of God saying, hey, there's a day coming. There's a river. It's going to make glad the city of God. There's, there's a new heaven. There's a new earth. There's a place where we're going, and it's going to be grand. But he again applies it into our lives today. He says, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. I mean, he's with us now, so we can trust him. He's the one who would carry us in everything that's going. He says it one more time. He says, come behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Hasn't happened yet. It's going to. There's a time when men will no longer learn war, when God will end the the, the destruction, the pain, the sorrow, and suffering that has marked our world from beginning till now. He says, it's not always going to be this way. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to be the one that brings in the solution. And so he invites us into that place. He says, here's what you need to do. Be still and know that I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. That then he's going to work all of this. He's working things to draw people to him, but he's just inviting you. Hey, that's what you're needing to do right now. You're needing to step into this and just recognize who he is. And so he ends it just saying, hey, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob. He's our refuge. He's the one that we can run to. He's the one that we can find help in. See, I want to tell you, Daniel 11 should do that in your life. I recognize this. Hey, this was a hard Bible study. I just want you to know this. I, 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 there's not anybody who's going to be like, that was my favorite message. I think I'm going to listen to it every day. No, I mean, if you're, you're, for some of you are like, man, that was hard. Some of you are like, I'm glad we went through it. I never want to go through that again. I'm kind of with you. You know, I'm kind of there. It's like that's just a lot of details and a lot of stuff goes back and forth. But I'm telling you there's something that can come out of Daniel 11, a place where you could look at it and say, that's my God. That's my God who can tell me the future before it happens. That's my God who is the God who is above everything, knows everything. That's my God who's working in history. And you know what I need to do out of that? Rest in him. Just be still. Just be still. Just stop quit stressing, quit worrying, don't give in to fear, don't, don't, don't feel like the world's upside down and can't be fixed. Hey, God's working, and I'm going to trust him. I'm going to be still and know him. So that what Daniel does here for us is he gives us a reality that would draw us into that space, and I invite you to that. I invite you into a space that you could actively do that. So let's do this. You can close your Bibles, your notebooks, whatever it is you have open, and we're going to step into a space where we just want to give you a moment to pray about it just a quiet moment to talk to God about whatever it is he said to you. It might be that he was talking to you who don't know him. And I'm telling you again that the complexity of what we talked about this morning is big, but one of the things that certainly is a reminder is there's only one God. There's only one God, and he's a just God. He's a holy God, but he's a saving God. He's a God that you need, and it's why he sent his son. And if that's not where you are today, we're telling you you desperately need Jesus. You desperately need him, and so we're inviting you to a relationship with him. And in this moment, you might want to just surrender your life to him. 
And if you can give it, do that and then talk to us afterward, we'd love to be a part of that. For others, many of you guys here, you are his child. That's already happened. You're his. But sometimes the reality is we lose sight of it. And really the great need is that we would just stop. And I give you an invitation right now. Would you be still and know that he's God? Would you just let that roll over you, whatever you're needing it to roll over you in, that you just stop and and just recognize he's bigger than you. He knows what he's doing. He knows everything. He's working. And you can rest in him. And I just want to invite you into that place of stillness. So you take a moment and pray about that. I'll do the same. And then we'll close in worship together in just a moment. God, you are God, the only God. You are the God who knows everything, who can tell us the end from the beginning, who can tell us how things are going to play out. There's not anything hidden to you, not anything you don't understand. God, I'm so glad for that. I'm so glad for just the, the, the greatness of who you are, and I'm glad that in that greatness that where this is going is not left to us in doubt. And yet, out of that, you invite us today. You invite us today to be impacted and to be still and to believe it and to know it, to know that you're God, that you're our refuge, that you're our present, our very present help in time of need. I thank you that you are. I pray that we would find it to be so, find you to be so. Would you strengthen that? Would you cause that to be just real into our lives today? I ask for that and surrender this to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. May God meet you in that. May he draw you into that place of just recognizing who he is. If you need to talk to someone after that, we'd love to talk to you and pray with you. But right now, we're going to ask you just to close with us in worship. So guys, why don't you stand, and we're going to close in a final worship song. I kind of have asked Pastor Phil to do a song we haven't done in a while. It's one that he wrote out of Psalm 46. And so just want to invite you to sing Psalm 46 to him in these words and celebrate both who God is and what he's doing and, and his reality. As we head there, I just want to bless you in his name. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.